I remember my friend Peter. He was a business guy who worked in the Shetland Islands in the oil industry. He'd come to college to train to go into the ministry. And he was walking one day through the streets of Chicago with a professor who was a Native American Indian. As they're walking through the streets of Chicago, and if you haven't been in downtown Chicago before, it's, you know, taxis and car alarms, which never mean anything, by the way. No one ever turns to think somebody's breaking into your car when you hear a car alarm. Just noise everywhere, like a typical city. And as they're walking along through the city, this professor turns to Peter and says, Whoa! Do you hear that? He's like, do I hear that? Like, I hear lots of stuff. No, do you hear... Do you hear the cricket? The cricket. He's like, no, no, seriously. And so he watched this professor as he listened, walked over to the side of the road where the water washes down into the sewer. He's like, yeah. And sure enough, he grabs a cricket off the streets of Chicago, making a little chirpy noise. And Peter's like, you've got to be kidding. Like, How in the world did you hear a cricket in the middle of all the city noise? He said, well, I've just sensitize my ears to that sound and the sound of a cricket always grabs my attention he said you city people have done the same thing he said no if anything we've all the noise pollution we've learned to tune out everything he's like oh no 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 you've sensitized yourself to certain sounds just not the sound of the cricket he says what do you mean he says well i'll show you he reaches into his pocket gets a handful of change and just throws it up in the air and it goes clang 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 over the sidewalk Every person within 50 feet suddenly is fine-tuned to the sound of the money and the change clanging around on the city street. What is it that grabs your attention? Have you fine-tuned your ears and your eyes to hear the voice of God? Or has something else grabbed your attention? And more than that, wouldn't it be neat if you knew how to grab the attention of your Heavenly Father? We're going to see in Luke today, there are certain things... That grab God's attention. So much so that Jesus is going to look up and zoom in. On certain types of living and giving. That so capture his heart. That he has to stop and have a little lesson with his disciples about it. Two reasons why you might want to grab God's attention. uh, That come out of this passage. The first one's rather interesting. It said not everything makes God look up. There's a lot of good things, but not everything grabs God's attention. Second thing is that not all living and not all giving is the same. When Jesus walks into the temple, there's two different groups, both living a certain type of life, both giving in a certain type of way. But not all giving and living grabs God's attention the way this grabs God's attention in, in temple that day. I don't know if you remember, there was a movie I used to love called The Three Amigos. And uh, Three Amigos has Steve Martin and they're sneaking back in to get their old outfits out of the Hollywood studio. And, and he's walking along the top wall and he's trying to get Chevy Chase and Martin Short's um, attention. And seemingly the wall looks three or four stories tall and he's like, you know, whippoorwill, whippoorwill, look up here, look up here, look up here. And, and Chevy Chase and Martin Short are just sitting there oblivious. And, and because of the way the camera cuts to them, cuts to him, you assume... You know, they must be on the top of a wall that's like three stories tall. The camera zooms out. Turns out they're five feet beneath him. And he's finally like, hey, guys! Oh, are you talking to us? I think sometimes this idea that we, God's subtle is, is like God's been trying to say, look up here, look up here, look up here. But in this passage, instead of God grabbing our attention, it's about things that 
this woman does that grabs God's attention and it's so subtle and it's so quiet. And you and I can grab God's attention by giving him our two cents worth. That's what we're going to learn in the passage today. We can grab God's attention by giving him your two cents. Jesus saw a certain poor widow putting in her two cents worth, her two mites. And in that we're going to find that there are two motivations that motivate you to serve other people, to be kind to other people, to be generous to other people. And those motivations flow directly out of the heart of God. The first motivation, we're going to go back to the passage that Drew spoke on last week and even magnify a few other little details about Melchizedek. The motivation is, before you want to grab God's attention or be generous to others, look at how generous God was to you. And look at what God did to get your attention. What did God do to get your attention? Or Jesus is in the middle of this battle and fight between the Pharisees and the scribes and himself. And they really didn't like the fact that everybody sang Hosanna, Hosanna when Jesus was coming in on the donkey. That's the context here. So Jesus speaks to them and says, well, let's talk about the Bible. How can they say that the Christ is the son of, of David? So the Christ is uh, Jesus, not Jesus' last name, by the way. You hear Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. That's his title. Jesus the anointed one is what Christ means or Jesus the Messiah. All right. So that's kind of what this passage means here, is it means that um, the Christ is the anointed one. Now he goes on, he says, now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord. Now what does it mean that the Lord would say to my Lord? Well, that's what's interesting, is here we have a group of people who are monotheists, and yet the word Lord is used twice in this passage. Notice, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Till I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. Huh. Why would he call him Lord? If he's also his son. So notice the word Lord and son. He says the Messiah was prophesied to be the Lord son. He's forever God. And he's also a descendant of David, a son. It's where we get the idea of the God man or the incarnation. Now think about God. If anything, if we live in a three-dimensional world bound by time and space, God is at least four-dimensional because the book of Romans tells us neither height nor depth nor width nor length can separate you from the love of God. So this multi-dimensional being outside of time and space put off, emptied himself of some of his divine characteristics like omnipresence, for example, to restrict himself to three-dimensional space to get close to us. That's what it was that God became man to grab your and my attention. And Jesus is extrapolating here from a passage about the Messiah from the book of Psalms that um, Drew did a great job explaining last week. And I just want to drill into one more little piece of that. Psalms 110. It says, when you think about the Messiah, when you think about what he's done for us, it's in the beauty of holiness. Now think about that. The word holy is used only of God. God is holy. But here it mentions the Messiah is holy and it's beautiful to see what God did to grab your attention and to be generous and kind to you and I. And notice through the metaphor of the womb, the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth, this Messiah would have a beginning in a womb. He would also have a youth. He would grow up. Huh. And the Lord has sworn and will not re- relent. You are a priest. He's a priest. But he's a priest forever. Well, humans 
aren't forever. We have a starting point, then we live forever. But this person, this Messiah, lived past, present, and future. And he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this really strange passage that Drew reminded us was back in the book of Genesis. He only gets like four verses. And so Melchizedek is somebody that encountered Abraham. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, we learned last week, means the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So the Messiah is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And he brought out bread and wine. What does the king, the Messiah, bring to you and I? Communion. What do we just partake of? Bread and wine. Would God, the reason God reduced himself to humanity, the reason he came to earth, is he wants friendship with us. He wants communion with us. He wants relationship with us. What motivates us to be generous to others, to grab God's attention, to build relationships with the people, is that that's exactly what God did for us. He is the king priest. Melchizedek's a king and he's a priest. And he came to bring communion. And the response from Abraham is, the minute you see what God has done for you, it says that Abraham gave him a tithe of all. In light of how generous God has been to me, I can't not be generous to other people. And so that's why this whole idea of understanding what God did for us is the motivation for what we do for him. And I got to see that firsthand this week. And this week we, we had a funeral and we had a wedding this week. So as a, as a church family, we get to be with people in their highest of highs and their lowest of lows. But you know, whether or not there's 750 people at a funeral, which we did this year, or 20 people at a funeral, I love to see the way our church comes and greets people who are grieving for the loss of a grandfather or a father. People who've never been in our doors can feel the warmth and love of people who give up their Friday afternoons or Friday mornings to come and serve, to be part of creating a community where we'll be generous. For those who go down to City Gospel or go to Belize or all the work we've been doing the last couple of years in Happy Church and helping the poorest of poor just around the neighborhood, it's the heartbeat of what we do comes out of our love for our Heavenly Father and His generosity to us. But Kenny particularly, he was up here singing a song that the family had requested this week. And I knew Kenny had a heck of a week. He just did not have time to memorize two new songs. And if, if you're picking a song that Kenny doesn't know, wow, you've really, you've really gone out there. And I got to see him come and own this incredible song as we saw a video of, of Ryan Ventura's father who passed away. And it just was so powerful, especially knowing the generosity of Kenny, who had a very limited amount of time to put this together to serve and to love in a family. I was sitting here in the front row and trying to get my thoughts together, and, and I had been doing a short little prayer at the end of the message. And I had it all prepared, and I felt like God was telling me to scrap it. I'm like, hey, I prepared that, God. I'm like, I scrap that thing. And I just felt as clearly as I've ever heard from God, just sensitizing my, my heart to his voice. I want you to go up and in that closing prayer talk about the Passover lamb. For a funeral? So I scrapped my notes and I came up. And for those of you who don't know Ryan, he's a youth pastor. That you know, he His dad was in failing health. They lived in Florida. They came, they moved here to Cincinnati. And because her dad was in such bad health, her dad came and lived with them for the last couple of years. And so their kids didn't just know Grandpa as the person we see once a year, but the person who lives you know, downstairs in the basement. And I got up and I began to describe that God had this habit of offering forgiveness to all people. And the habit was that you loved all your sheep if you were a, a shepherd. 
you knew your sheep, you loved your sheep, but right before Passover, you were supposed to go out into your flock and find a perfect sheep, one you loved and cared about. You were to bring it into your home right before Passover. So the sheep that was something you loved became something up close and personal. And now your kids got to see the sheep not just as one of the flock, but to see it as a family pet. And when you're up close with the sheep, you loved it more. And so when the time came at Passover in just a few weeks and it died, it was heartbreaking. It wasn't just a sheep that died, it was your family pet that died. And you would have a sense of loss that would be higher. But that loss was higher because your love was higher. I looked at Ryan and Becky who were sitting here in the front row and I said, you know, you brought your dad in, someone you already loved. But the proximity you spent and your kids getting to know him in such a deeper way, your loss is going to be great. But your loss is higher because your love was higher. And that's what God did for us. He could have stayed at a distance and just sent a manual, but he became one of us, generously giving of himself to be the priest king, advocating his responsibilities. He who was rich became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. And aren't there stories like that that capture your imagination? It's the story of the gospel. It's Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. There's a prince who was rich, but he gave up his position to swap with somebody who was poor. It was through his poverty that he who was poor suddenly got all the benefits and privileges of being rich. Mark Twain wrote that story. It was actually based on King Edward VI. But it was King Edward VIII, just his grandson, who actually did that in 1936s. King Edward VIII really wanted to marry a woman named Wallace, but she had been divorced. And so she had the big scarlet D. She was unacceptable in those days because of her divorce. And so King Edward advocated the throne. He gave up all the responsibilities of the throne. He gave up all of his access. He gave up his kingdom for the sake of love and loving someone that the culture considered unclean. And that's what God did for us. He gave of himself. He became one of us. He advocated the throne. It was prophesied in Psalm 110. It's fulfilled here as Jesus references it. My Lord said to his Lord, the Son and the Lord. So how did the scribes miss it? How did the Pharisees miss it? How did everyone miss out on something that Jesus shows is so clear? Well, first they had to admit they were lost, and then they had to have a connection with God. And that comes to our second motivation. The second motivation for grabbing God's attention is realizing that God is watching and God notices how generous you are to yourself. <laughs> yeah, most of us, hardly anybody I know has a problem with generosity to themselves, right? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We give ourselves an excuse, right? We say, well, yeah, I probably deserve this an extra vacation. I deserve this. We give ourselves an upgrade. We can talk ourselves into anything. The, the issue Jesus notes here is that we're not as generous to others as we are to ourselves. And he notes this about the scribes. So here's what he says. He says, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. Now, in one sense, who doesn't like nice things, right? And being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't have to not like nice things. In fact, Jesus says, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to find out what the problem was, is that they were generous to themselves, wanting the best robes and the best seats, but they weren't that generous to others. In fact, they were the opposite. Look at the phrase he uses here. While you were all about your own best seats, best robes, best places, you devoured 
devoured, devoured widows' houses. Like it's bad enough they're devouring anybody. Like here's the pastor, he's devouring people. Like that's a problem, right? Devouring people if you're a priest or a scribe. But then they like to put the word widow next to it. You're devouring widows' houses. But the scribes and Pharisees had this very clever thing they had done, which is they found ways to to label their money in a way to not be generous. And so think of it like a, an, an, a, a religious, hypocritical tax haven that's not ethical at all. They would have a certain amount of money. So imagine a big pile of gold and silver. This is a pile of gold and silver. And their parents, Jesus references this as well, their parents need some support, need some help. And so you should help and honor your family. So what they would do is they'd take this pile of cash and they would pray over it. God, we dedicate this to you. And then they would, no longer do I own that because I prayed over it. It's in a special haven that, so your parents come to you and say, hey, hey, I really need some help. I'm getting kicked out of my house. Could I have some of that money? That's God's money. What's sitting right there? Oh, yeah, but I prayed over it. So it's no longer mine to give. I'm actually bankrupt. Well, don't you use that money to buy your own stuff? Well, sure, God provides for me. So this was the kind of system they put in place that they would devour. So now as a scribe, the scribes went back to the time of Ezra. And again, they had a very passionate place of putting the scriptures together and make sure that it was communicated in multi-generational discipline to make sure we had the Bible reliably and counting the numbers and counting the letters. But somewhere along the way, they thought of themselves too highly. And they started thinking that life was about them. And those best seats and those best places, it didn't matter if they had to take money from people who couldn't afford it or didn't, didn't have the means if it meant their lifestyle would be higher. They were incredibly generous to themselves, but incredibly stingy toward others. Now, when you think of best seats, what comes to mind? Maybe you think of a 50-yard line at the Super Bowl would be the best seat or, or sitting in a skybox at a corporate event. Or, or maybe for you, a best seat would be watching the opera. I don't know what your best seat is. But let me show you what the best seats were in synagogues those days. Here's a, here's a picture of a synagogue. I got a chance to visit this in Capernaum. And so a synagogue had rows of seats around the outside. So when you think of best seats, look how comfortable those are. Wow. Now notice there's the floor level, level one and level two. The best seats were the high seats. Isn't that amazing what cultures do? Like if you go to a Reds game and you end up sitting at the top seats, you're like, those are the nosebleed seats, right? You don't want the top seats, unless maybe it's a skybox. So cultures will switch exactly what is a best seat. And does that look particularly comfortable? Are you going to go in and fight somebody in synagogue for that seat? They did in those days. And whether or not you sat in the top, the second row or on the floor, communicate a lot about where you are in a socioeconomic order. Here's another synagogue from the Galilee area. So I got to visit this area as well. And this area at the very, very back, you can see a blue sign, a small blue sign in the back. There's a very special seat. This is called Moses' seat. And Moses' seat, not only were you, you know, was the best seat, but it meant you had spiritual authority if you're allowed to sit in that seat. If I go ahead and zoom in on that, let me show you what the Moses' seat looks like. Next slide. And Jesus says, hey, when you come into an arena, I want you to be generous in serving of others like I was generous in serving of others. I don't want you to come in and say, how can I get the best, but how can I give the best to others? Do not sit down in the best place, lest he who invited you says to you, give place to this man. 
And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. And Jesus tells us in that culture, the lowest place was bad. So you don't want to start in the good seat and somebody says, oh, somebody more important than you came along and you got to sort of be shamed down. Better to sit in the lowest places and the host comes and says, hey, come sit up here. Lower yourself, let God elevate you rather than elevating yourself and making God humble you. You want God, the host, to say, friend, go up higher. Let him elevate you. Let him bring you up. So that's the context here what Jesus is talking about. But again, how did Bible-believing scribes end up devouring widows? Well, they got reeled in by greed. It's like they started devouring widows' homes. I got a chance to go fishing um, a couple months ago. I'm not a big fisherman, but I got good fishing for marlin. I caught a 250-pound marlin, a 300-pound mar- marlin, only a couple hours. And I'd never been fishing in a boat like this, so the back of the boat has the equivalent of a barber chair. So if you've ever been to a you know, barber shop, it looks like a barber chair. It swivels in all directions. You're strapped in, and you got this this reel that's like this big around. I mean, it's just a massive, massive, you one hand doing this thing. And you let that line go out. I mean, it's like 300 yards out. And sure enough, I'm sitting in the chair, and wham! I get a hit. We got a marlin! So I start cranking. I'm like, well, how hard can this be? No, no, you gotta use the other hand to read the line. And I'm pulling this thing in. It's like crank. Finally gets so tight that you can't even crank that thing. You actually have to push up on the barber chair to get a little slack and then crank down. Push up, crank down. And slowly you can reel in this incredibly powerful creature just one crank at a time. And that's why Jesus says, beware the many faces of greed. It'll hook you and it'll give you plenty of line to do whatever you want. And then it will sort of pull in and crank. Should you be generous to them? Uh, you know what? I worked really hard for my money. Crank. You swim around a little bit. Well, maybe, maybe God's prompting you to give to somebody and to serve somebody sacrificially. <clears throat> they should probably do it themselves. Come on. Pull up your bootstraps. All right. You swim a little bit longer and greed pulls you in again. <clears throat> you know how much money I give to the government. I probably have to lose 30, 40% of my income to the government through taxes. You know, I think that's probably the way I give. <clears throat> You know, I'm not sure their needs are particularly legitimate anyway. It's one crank at a time that we go from being overwhelmed by God's generosity and being the kind of serving, giving people that portray his heart to slowly those scribes just get cranked in, reeled in by greed, one crank at a time to the point at which they're devouring widows who they're called to serve's houses. So if God did all of that to get our attention, and if God notices how generous we are to ourself, then what's our response? And now we come to this encounter where Jesus is in temple. And he tells us the only response is to give God your two cents worth. To, to let your heart and your service and your life portray what God does as well. It says Jesus looked up and he saw two groups, the rich putting in their gifts in the treasury, and he also saw someone else, this widow. And the widow is going to give her two cents worth. The rich are going to give a lot more than that. But God's not particularly impressed by what the rich are giving, and he's incredibly struck by what the widow is giving. So much so that this nameless widow who we still don't know her name of, will be a teaching element for Jesus and she will be studied for hundreds of years as an example of sacrificial, generous, other-centeredness. And with that, I want to give you four questions. 
to ask yourself when it comes to giving God your two cents worth. Question number one. Am I giving despite my circumstances? He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the treasury, but he saw also a certain poor widow putting in her two mites. Just look at those phrases. Certain poor widow. Let's start with widow. This woman is giving generously to the God who took her husband. Just think about that. The God who let her husband die. When you study the book of Ruth, you see a, a woman named Pleasant or Naomi. God takes her husband and her two sons and she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. Because she's so embittered at what God has done. She allowed life to just crumble her up in the first chapter of Ruth. But not this widow. She's accepted that God can give and take away. And she's still generous despite her circumstances. And more than that, apparently her husband didn't do very well for himself or didn't do very good at his long-term financial planning because he's left her destitute. She's a widow and she's a poor widow. This is very unheard of. You you had multi-generational farms. And so she's giving despite being a widow and despite the fact that her husband has left her in destitute circumstances. But she's giving because she loves the God who has been so generous to her. Second question. Am I giving despite my circumstance? The second question, am I giving secretly for God alone to see? Again, I love this idea that God, Jesus, looks up and saw what she did when she was putting in the money. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus references the same idea. He said that many will come in to a temple and they'll be like, Oh, I'm praying now. Listen up. And they'll pray these long prayers. And when they give, they make a big deal about it. Clank, 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 clank. Yep, just giving my tithe. He said, then there's others who give in secret. They don't let their left hand know what their right hand is doing. Now, you can give and make a big deal about it. That's okay. She says, you'll have your reward in full. Or you can give secretly before your heavenly father. And you will get a reward, but it will be a lot bigger. Because you're giving not for the reputation and not for the applause of man. You're giving for the applause of heaven. You're giving in response to your heavenly father. When you give of money, when you give of yourself, when you serve your spouse, when you serve your neighborhood, when you go to happy church, when you give up a vacation to go to Belize or, or, or Cancun, are you doing it so you can tell a story? Nothing wrong with telling stories. I love telling stories. Are you doing it to feel good about yourself? Nothing wrong with wanting to feel good about yourself. But are you primarily doing it because you want to do unto others what Jesus has done unto you? I think it's interesting if you look at a, a map, I'm sure you a picture here of what the tabernacle looked like in those days. It's very interesting that here on the right-hand side you'll see uh, Herod's temple. So at the top section, that building, that is the Holy of Holies, where the ark would be. And you'll see the, the big doorway there in the middle, that was the entrance to the temple. So the area at the bottom was called the Court of Women. So the Court of Women was the area that they actually had their offering. And the offering were made of these giant kind of trumpety-looking offering containers, as you'll see there on the left. So imagine there's 13 of these spread out around the, the columns where you could come in and give. And some people can make a big deal. Other people will quietly give in. And apparently, at the same time, somebody's making a big deal on one side, putting their money into the trumpet. Somebody on the other side is quietly dropping in her two cents worth. 
And the thing that grabs God's attention, Jesus looks up and looks over at the two coins. I don't know if you went to the mall back, back when people went to the mall, uh, before all the malls closed. And there would be those places you could donate your coins and you'd put them on and they'd be like, right? And they drop in. I just imagine this trumpet-looking place, and here's this woman, the first one to invent that, by the way, and she takes the two little mites and she puts them on there and... Clink. And God's like, whoa, disciples, time for a talk. Let me tell you what just happened there. That was pretty amazing. She gives a mite. A mite is considered one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So think of whatever you think you make in a day. One sixty-fourth of that, and she gives two. So one thirty-second, that's how much she's giving. Her two cents worth is what she gives to God that day. She gives despite her circumstances. She gives quietly for only God to know. And the third question, do I practice equal sacrifice, not equal gifts? Not everyone can get the same. God could have set up a system where we all serve an hour a week, or we all serve, you know, all give a hundred bucks a, a year to, to God's work. And that would have been way too much for some people and way too little for others. Instead, God set up a system where our heart was, what season of life are you in? How much time and money has been, has been given to you in this season of life? And how do you give percentages of your income and percentages of your time to serve other people? That's why God set it up that way. And he references this idea here that it's not about equal gifts, because the rich are giving a lot more in quantity than this woman. It's about sacrifice, and she's doing a far higher sacrifice than they are. He said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. More. The two little clink was more than clankety, 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 clankety. Because she was giving a huge percentage sacrifice compared to what the rich were doing. Do I practice equal sacrifice, not equal gifts? And last question, I think this is so interesting what Jesus does. Am I giving God my life? You know, God doesn't need your money. He has plenty of money. But he knows that where our treasure is, our heart is. Are you giving God your life? Some people give God their life. Hey, I'll give time, I'll give energy, but not money. Well, no, money's part of your life. Giving God your life includes your money. Other people give God money. I'll write a check but I'm not allowing God to have my heart. I'm not going to go get my hands dirty. I'm not going to go get into the situation. I'm not going to my heart break over poverty. My heart break over uh, over the, 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 the difficulties that people are going through in that circumstance. So some people give money without their life. And some people give life without their money. But God wants you to give all of yourself. Which includes your time, your heart, your emotion, and your money. And look how he says it here. It's so clever. For all of, all of these people, the rich, gave out of their abundance. They had stuff left over. But And they put in their offerings for God. But she didn't give out of abundance. She gave out of her need, her poverty. She put in all the livelihood that she had. That word livelihood in the Greek comes from the word bios, where we get biology or biosphere. It's your life. She gave of her life here. That's how you know, by the way, whether or not you're just tipping with your time and your money versus your giving sacrificially. And here's a big way to think of it. Did this giving affect your choices? I think about your retirement. When when you start serving for retirement, you give a certain percentage to your retirement and it affects your choices. Because I'm going to put so much in for the future, I'm going to have to do a few things different in the present. The same thing's true of giving. When you're giving joyfully and intentionally to God, 
It should affect other choices. Because I've prioritized this, I'm going to have to make different choices over here. That's the idea he's getting at here. That your whole life is affected by this lifestyle of service, this lifestyle of generosity. And when you do that, it grabs God's attention. It doesn't feel like it if you're serving a, a parent who's aging and, and, you know, they're kind of crabby and, you know, they're hurt, hurt or in pain all the time. They're not particularly grateful. And you're thinking, this is thankless work. But from heaven, God looks down. Angels! Look up here! Look over there! Look at that sacrifice. Look at that love. And isn't it true they gave out of their abundance that many of us have the capacity to give so much more time and energy and money to other people than we really do? A couple months ago, I was talking to my friend Bob who attends Horizon, and he told me a hilarious story. He said that God had prompted him to give to Doctors Without Borders. And so he sat down at the computer. He said he's not particularly great at computers. So he sat down at the computer and decided to, to do a giving to Doctors Without Borders. And so we're responding to God's leading, gets on there and you know, gave $200, you know, in zero cents. Sent. About a month and a half goes by and he gets this really nice letter. Really nice letter from Doctors of Borders saying, Thank you for your wonderful gift of $20,000. He said, he said, I uh, didn't put the decimal in the right place. I said, what'd you do? He said, well, I was, I hadn't noticed it for like a month and a half. And, and uh, I, I guess I figured, I guess they needed it. So I did. I said, wow, well, Bob, the only, th- the only thing I can imagine that God would tell me to tell you is that you need to start giving through the online portal at Horizon. <laughs> I was just joking. Uh, but when he told me that story, it reminded me, your numbers are probably, you know, probably, you know, you're going to miss that amount of money a little bit sooner than he did. But whatever the number is, isn't it amazing that our ability to give, we can give a lot more than what we think we can? And that... Even in an accident, you go, you know what? I have the capacity to give more than I'm giving. And, and I want to allow God to expand my heart and expand my world in that way. And I tell you what's unique about Horizon, and I hope you give to Horizon because you believe what we're doing here, but I hope you're giving to a lot more than Horizon. I hope God is, is breaking your heart in different ways that you're giving of your money and your life to serve family members and to serve people in our community. And again, I hope you're sending your kids this summer down to Happy Church with our teams. And I hope you're going to City Gospel. And I hope you're allowing God to just bring up needs around you in the city and be prompted to build things that have nothing to do with Horizon that you just feel uniquely called to. Because you want to bring His kingdom come to this earth. I'm often struck by how unique Horizon is. I have a friend who's been attending here for four or five years, but I met him last year in a small group. And so he's training to be in the Secret Service. And so he came back from Dayton after several months of Secret Service training. And he's like, wow, this is tough. And it's challenging. It's exciting. He said, I'm up in Dayton. Can you tell me any church up in Dayton that's like Horizon that teaches verse by verse through the Bible but it's compelling and relevant? And I said, well, I really can't, but I'll look. And he said, I'm about to be transported to D.C. Um, is there a good church in D.C.? And I said, well, I got another friend who moved to D.C. Uh, to do some work in politics several years ago, but he couldn't find a good church um, and he was listening to all the MP3s at Horizon. I'll call him up. So I called him up. You have any good churches in D.C. you found? Not really. Oh, that's kind of discouraging. Um, and I think it reminded me of just how generous our congregation has been and how unique our mission is. If those of you know, you know, many of you have been giving for the last year. And I've told you for the next 30 days in June, we're going to have new equipment going in for video. 
And then the next 30 days in July, with Turner Constructions coming in to redo some rooms to add a fifth service that we can add, and you know, eventually a sixth service. Um, and then we're also going to be able to start doing online services and live stream services. Because I'm just finding so many people, their kids go off to college, that they love Horizon, they don't go to church anymore. The idea that what we're uniquely doing, what God's uniquely put in our heart, our love for the Bible, our love for Scripture, our love for application, is something we're going to be able to expand to other people. Like my friend who's training for the Secret Service. They need a lot of God in Washington, D.C. We've we got to get some of that, get, get some of the Bible over there. So again, thank you for the way you give to Horizon. And I would just ask you to continue to wrestle with what God is doing, especially in this unique season we're in, of what does it look like for God to prompt you to be a person who's generous with your kindness, generous with your mercy, generous with your patience, and yes, generous with your money. Let's be people that give God our two cents worth and grab his attention. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful reminder of a woman who has been known through the centuries as an example of other-centeredness. Teach us how to live the same way, the way we serve, the way we love, and the way we give. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. See you all next week.